I'm meeting my sister Katie and her partner Chris for the annual foray to the Bryant Park film series. Only this year, Ben is along, and the feature is Bye Bye Birdie. He and I get there early, spread a blanket, and unload dinner from Cozy. I desperately need a night not thinking about Israel. While we munch, Ben says Katie told him she wants to get a baby. I say, I know. He says he and Grandma Eileen prayed in church and asked God to help Katie. This shocks me, but I only nod. He nods, too, under his Lightning McQueen cap. Now I see Katie's red hair making its way through the crowd, and she skips over and swings her hysterical nephew through the air. Master Benjamin Ben Benny Benji Benson Bennington Ben Noodlehead the First. Chris mockingly offers a handshake. Good day, Michael. I answer sternly, and a fine day to you, Christine. Then we laugh, and I hug my common-law sister-in-law. While Chris and Ben discuss Disney cars, I smile at Katie. This just in. Guess who's lighting candles for a bambino? Katie's eyebrows rise. So miracles do happen. She says this in Deep South. Her standard bread and butter is a patois marketed as U.S. General American, but she's also adept at New England, Mid-Atlantic, and all varieties of Greater New York. The title song starts. Katie and Chris and dozens of other women, as well as quite a few men, and my only son, jump up and dance along with Anne Margaret's skirt twitching. Bob M., the tower manager, is in an unusually decent mood and visits the break room on the 14th floor to shoot the shit with us. I look up from a 2009 aviation week and nod, and he nods back. Why is he hanging with the rank and file? Finally, I conclude he's probably acting on tips learned at a management seminar. I've never had a run-in with the guy, but he screwed enough colleagues for me to know he would screw me high, hard, quick, without him having to consider it first. He falls in with loudmouths jawing about the Yankees and what a bust A-Rod's been post-season. Nothing you couldn't parrot from a thousand calls to the fan. I was going to take the kids to the stadium, says Rusty, uh, an older guy. It runs like 200 bucks now. Parking, hot dogs, freaking ridiculous. Bob M. dramatically shakes his head. Don't mention kids. I had a tea time on Saturday. Rockville Center. Of course, I never played. But I got a babysit. There's a chorus of groaning and, oh, shit. That sucks, chimes in Wayne, always eager to suck management tit. Whose kids? Mine, says Bob M. And there's raucous laughter. My wife's got me by the short ones. I got out of it like three times. She's doing something with her sister, and I'm nailed. I got to babysit from Friday till Sunday. Nailed. More groans, curses, sympathetic chuckles. And now I've walked around the pool table and stopped a little closer to Bob M., someone who could obliterate my career and transform me from Flushing to Fairbanks. Hey, Bob! I say, and everyone quiets as I glimpse Wayne's furrowed forehead. I've got to ask you something. 
What is it? Bob says calmly, slipping from guy who wants to hide 18 holes in Rockville Center and back to guy who holds both my balls in his surprisingly small hands now that I notice them. How can you babysit your own kids? I may have spit it out too quickly in an effort not to sound too confrontational, but Rusty literally steps further away. How's that? I mean, how can you babysit your own kids? They're your kids too, right? How can you babysit them? Only other people can babysit them, right? Bob M. nods the same nod he offers when sitting on a review board preparing to vote on the length of the suspension. Interesting point, Mike. He makes a show of looking at his watch, and then, just like that, he's gone. Things are silent for a few beats, until finally Rusty speaks up. Hey, Mullen! What the fuck? Over! I say nothing. Some things are hard to articulate. My mother and I learn Ben's obsession with colors is passing. We're at an indoor medieval dinner somewhere near the ass end of the Meadowlands, and we're explicitly instructed to root only for the green knight. I wait, breathless, when the wench in the lime bodice hands us our emerald pennant. I fully expect Ben to insist we move to the red or even blue section, which we can't because the house is packed. My insides tighten as we prepare for a joust of our own in row 11. Ed, Ben shrugs and turns to munching a roasted turkey leg as big as his calf. I let my breath out slowly, smile at my mother, and pick up a spare rib. That sweetest, most elusive entity of all, progress. Huzzah! I'm laying out Mrs. Paul's fish sticks on a cookie sheet, and it's no simple task. Ben insists on the same number in each row. Now he yells that my phone is ringing. You ignore caller ID at your peril. I look down and see it's not good. Amex customer service. Mr. Mulan? No. Sir, I'm trying to reach Mr. Mu Mr. Michael Mulan. I'm guessing Bangalore or Delhi. I quit prolonging the inevitable. This is Michael Mullen. Ah, Mr. Mullen. Yes, who is this? American Express Personal Credit Card Center. I see. Ben looks up from an episode of Arthur. There's a pause. Sir, I am calling about your account. Ending 5561. Yes. Sir, as a security precaution, can you tell me your mother's maiden name? No, I can't. For security reasons, this is an unsecure line. He pauses again. Sir, you have an outstanding balance on... I know. I peer at Ben, completely focused on Arthur. Look. You sent me notices, voicemails, your calling. But look, we can talk all day. I just don't have it. Static from the developing world buzzes my eardrum. Excuse me? Sir, why do you not have the payment? Why? 
I breathed deeply. Well, my ex-wife wants to kidnap my son to Israel. I mean, that's the main reason. There are others. Sir, you agreed to make a payment on April. Did you hear me? My son is being kidnapped. I understand, sir, but the payment was... No, don't say... Don't say you understand. What? Do you have children? No, sir. I utter words I once swore I'd never utter. Well, if you did, then you'd understand. Damn. Before Ben was born, I hated it when people played that card. Who the hell have I become now? Sir, I... Look, it's really simple. I can pay my lawyers and keep my son from being kidnapped, or pay American Express. It's, I mean, it's not really a contest. Then I add, I'm sorry. Sir, if we don't receive a payment by the 5th, my credit rating will be screwed. You'll break my arms. So, can I indicate you'll make a payment by the 5th, sir? I shrug. I don't know. All depends on how the kidnapping goes. I've stopped listening. Fish sticks don't take very long. We've got a court date, but Hillary can't make it. Voicemailing me, she'll be presenting final arguments in another custody battle, this one in the Bronx. Replacing her is the youngest attorney at her firm, a sort of Midwestern-looking guy with blonde hair and Scandinavian features named Cal. Like a lot of people who moved here at 22, he speaks about New York City as if the rest of us don't understand its charms. Hillary indicated today is just formality, a reading of the summaries of both cases so Judge Westfall can consider all points before blocking the move to Israel. To me, it's such an absurd proposal, dragging a child across the world and away from his home and most of his loved ones. I can't even conceive of a wise adjudicator who would allow it. I stand with Cal at the plaintiff's table, and she stands with Elphaba at the defendant's table. The judge's assistant drones on about Benjamin Cohen Mullen so the court reporter can record the pertinent names and dates. Then she nods towards Cal, and my attorney du jour stands and explains why Michael Patrick Mullen is requesting he become the custodial parent of the fruit of the marriage. All throughout, however, I'm watching Judge Westfall, and it's quite clear she's off somewhere far away. We all listen to Cal's flat Nebraska monotone, yet the judge has reading glasses on, low on her nose, and she's immersed in a document I'm certain is about some other fruit of some other marriage. Even when Cal pauses for effect, she neither looks up nor stops tapping a pencil. Finally, Cal moves into the homestretch mode and lets loose the phrase, best interests of the child and the child's father. Now the judge looks up. She drops the pencil, removes the glasses, and stares. Counselor, she says so softly, Cal doesn't hear it. I flinch. Incumbent upon this, counselor, she says again. It's clear Cal's stride has been altered. Yes, Your Honor. Would you approach, please? Then, for the first time ever, 
she stares directly at me. You too, Mr. She lets my absent name trail off, not pretending to search for it. My chair scrapes loudly since I push it back so quickly, but I'm following Cal's long strides toward the bench. Suddenly, it's a hot Texas afternoon during basic training, and I'm still learning how to stand stiffly at attention. The open windows let in so much trafficked in that only Cal and I can hear the judge. Counselor. Now there's the unmistakable edge of incredulity, even annoyance. I'm sweating as if it really is Texas and cursing whatever parent in the Bronx took Hillary away. Somehow Cal has screwed up. That much is clear. Yet I don't know how. Your Honor, he says meekly. She leans forward and involuntarily we both lean inward. Are you saying your client is requesting to be custodial? Cal nods furiously. Yes, Your Honor, it's all documented. She glances briefly in my direction, as if an open window had gatewayed a bothersome insect. And your client is the father? Yes, Your Honor. And the client's mother, the woman in blue suit? Yes. The judge sits back. There's a loud sigh, and I truly can't tell if it's genuine or for effect. From what I've seen of the judicial system, on most days, it's all a high school play in search of a drama coach. That feeling comes over me once more. That feeling our lives are about to be altered yet again, and not in a good way. Counselor, let me explain how it works in my courtroom. In my courtroom, unless the mother is a prostitute or on crack, she is always awarded custody. She pauses. Always. Do you understand? I say nothing. I do nothing. I feel nothing. But, Your Honor, Cal sputters. I can sense him desperately regrouping. The 19th Amendment, Judge Rhonda Westfall raises her hand. You have your constitution. I have mine. Go sit down, please. Almost immediately, she announces she very much supports the defendant's efforts to further her career by working in Israel for one year. It's an excellent opportunity for a working mother, and after all, the child isn't yet in kindergarten. Therefore, both parents will share joint custody with the mother as custodial parent. Just like that. The ruling I thought would take days. Joint custody, the most grievous oxymoron in all of law. How exactly are we jointly raising a child while living on separate continents? The judge adds that the father, of course, will be allowed visitation in Israel on dates agreed upon by both parties. I may regret it for the rest of my life, but I act through instinct, not premeditation. Committing the most grievous of sins I speak up in court and address the judge without being acknowledged. I'm on my feet and my voice cracks, but I plead, please, your honor, don't allow my son to leave the country. I'll never see him again. She booked a one-way trip on El Al. Please, 
They won't be back. She wants to take him away for good. Elphaba, of course, is shocked by such charges, and now she's on her feet. Her client dramatically shakes her head. The judge actually pounds her gavel, and we all sink back into our chairs. Then she commands me to stand again. I need to learn trust, I'm lectured by Judge Westfall. I need to address my temper issues and my anger issues, and most of all, my trust issues. My child's welfare is dependent upon both parents trusting each other and communicating with each other. I need to put my child's needs first, not my own. I need to learn to trust the defendant. The defendant nods at this. I sink back down again, and my only thought is, I'm too old to learn Hebrew. Back at Kevin's, I find myself Googling Constitution U.S., and I quickly discover the relevant nugget. Article 19, proposed 1919, ratified 1920. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Quite straightforward and surprisingly simple. The language specifically refers to voting, yet after more Googling, I learn most legal scholars view it in much broader terms as equal opportunity among genders. That said, like far too many laws of the land, this one has been ignored fairly often since 1920 on everything from women earning equal pay to women serving in combat. I've always believed it's disgraceful how women have been treated in this country, by Congress, courts, cops answering domestic disturbance calls. I recall how Katie had to sue to obtain her first apartment, and how my mother was fired from her part-time teaching job when she became pregnant with Kevin, and how Airman Rebecca Truman, yes, the Air Force refers to women enlistees as airmen, was denied a rightful spot in the Dover Tower but apparently violating the 19th Amendment cuts both ways. Hillary doesn't answer my voicemails. I wake up when Kevin notes it's 3 a.m. and I'm stretched out on the couch, still fully dressed. I'm on a break, but I'm still in the tower's management pod, just past a small set of stairs leading to the Grand Central Parkway side rather than the air side. I'm staring out the endless conga line of arrivals snaking over Westchester and into the Bronx, and then right on to runway 22. For someone who spends his life speaking, I have little left to say. I've told it to my mother, my siblings, Sam, Annabelle. What else is there to enunciate? The government I'm working for at this very moment, that I served in uniform, that I salute with my hand over my heart at City Field. All its guarantees and promises have seismically shifted under me, as surely as the earth is shifting under that Airbus, its dangling landing gear blindly clawing at air as it fights to return to terra firma. I think of the quiet night when Moe told me he's appealing his discriminatory discharge to the Pentagon, and how he muttered, yeah, the Pentagon, you know, that was no 757. My head snapped, and I rolled my chair closer, and we talked about the experts we respect 
who question official narratives. I'm learning to question. The worst part is that, for the first time, I'm questioning my relationship with Ben. Has our bond, the surest bond we both have, somehow become vulnerable? As always, a hard copy of the monthly schedule is posted on the Union Bulletin Board. I have an electronic version, so I rarely glance at it, but someone added comments in red sharpie. So I move in. At the bottom of the alphabetical roster, right under Wes Yardley, is this. Mike Mullen's kid. Ben is slated to work three shifts a day, all 31 days. I'm back at the VA hospital in Fort Hamilton, only this time, instead of bringing Ben to visit his grandfather, I'm bringing my mother to visit her husband. As we enter the lobby, I tell my mom to go ahead and I'll come fetch her later. She gets on the elevator and I head to the information desk. Ten minutes later, I'm at the opposite end of the building, filling out a lengthy form on a wooden clipboard. I wish I had my DD-214 with all my discharge information, but this wasn't planned, so I guess it's some dates. Finally, I hear a nurse call, Mullen! I stand before her huge desk. There are about 20 people in the room, all men, representing a cross-section not only of races and ethnicities, but the wars that brought them here. Afghanistan, Bush Jr.'s Iraq, Bush Sr.'s Iraq, Nam, Korea, even some hanging on from World War II, H.W., N.W., so many wounds inflicted. Fathers and sons. What's the nature of your problem? Can my parents hear her booming voice five floors above us? Excuse me? Your problem, she says slowly. What is it? I lower my own voice. Well, I'd like to speak to um, a counselor. You know, to discuss some issues. Right. What issues? I'm not sure. Well, if you're not sure, then how can we help you? She's staring at me. You want to take a guess? Well, I, uh, I've been having problems. Um, marriage problems. Financial problems. You know. Substance abuse? What? She speaks slowly again, obviously convinced I'm a moron. Are you engaged in substance abuse? Unfortunately, when she speaks slowly, she also speaks loudly. Two non-era guys with stereotypic gray ponytails look up. No. Suicidal thoughts? Well, she leans forward. Have you had suicidal thoughts? I lift the spring-like device on the clipboard and slip out the paperwork, then stuff it into my back pocket. You know what? I'm fine. Really, I'm good. For the first time, she smiles. Great! Morales! I decide to wait in the lobby. It's a summer of waiting for the wheels of justice, specifically for the parameters of a very detailed legal agreement. Hillary finally calls. Ben is allowed to live in Israel, but only for the next 10 months, 
and with ample visitation from me, he must return to Queens County next summer before starting kindergarten. Justice is done with us. For now. My phone buzzes and I check the time. Friday, almost 7 a.m. Yeah? She says her name, but I already know it's her. Ever since the Israel ruling, my feelings have hardened. I've tried and tried and tried to give her the benefit of the doubt. But now I too am starting to believe the worst about her. It's a dark mindset. I'd give anything for a time machine and a do-over. Is Ben all right? Yes, he's fine. Where is he? The connection is crystal clear, and my heart sinks into my shoulders as I voluntarily grimace, don't say Israel, Israel, Israel. He's with my parents. I told you, he's fine. Okay, where are you? In the city. In the city. And Ben's in Queens. Okay. I'm calling to tell you something. Okay. I got married last night. Hmm. She seems unsure of what to say, as if she calculated I'd be talking. I'm not. Finally, she breaks the silence. Do you have any questions? I cough. Well... I haven't received any divorce papers. You're not... I mean, this isn't bigamy, is it? She clucks in disappointment, or perhaps it's substantiation. No, she replies impatiently. The divorce is final. Well, like I said, I didn't get anything. When was it final? What? I said, when was it final? She clucks again. I'm not... Why? I'd like to know. Tuesday. Tuesday. I cough again. And last night was Thursday. Now she is silent. Who did you marry? Casper, she says, as if this is obvious. To her, it probably is. Well, I haven't gotten any papers. Your attorney can pick them up at the courthouse on Sutphin Boulevard. Uh-huh. Is that what you did? What? Is that what you did? Pick them up at the courthouse. Her voice sounds far away, further even than Israel. Yes. I guess we'll have to do that. It's as if she had something else to say, but now won't say it. Instead, that far-off voice breaking in. Well, goodbye. Goodbye, I tell her. And now, it's a summer of crying. Over and over, unprovoked, unpredictable, unexplainable crying jags. They come on unexpectedly and are hard to shake. Not Ben. Me.